We could actually explain just about everything that's distinctive about our species mentally, in addition to physically, as a product of cooperation. First we became highly cooperative, and then just about everything else that we associate with our species, including our capacity for symbolic thought, and our ability to transmit large amounts of learned knowledge across generations, in other words, cultural evolution. All of these could not happen without a high degree of cooperation, much of it unconscious. We cooperate in ways that we don't even think of as cooperation. It takes place beneath our conscious awareness. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp, and we are just dropping into your feeds with a bonus episode. I'm really happy to share with you this conversation with evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson. David is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Biology and Anthropology at Binghamton University. He's also a co-founder of both the Evolution Institute and Pro-Social World, and the author of numerous books, including his recent book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. The reason why we're sharing this episode now is that we at Mind and Life have actually just launched a new film called Evolution of the Heart. This is a short documentary covering conversations between the Dalai Lama, David Sloan Wilson, and social scientist Pumla Gabodo Marikazela from a 2019 Mind and Life event in Dharamsala, India. The theme of that gathering was compassion, interconnection, and transformation, topics that we often touch on here in the podcast, I definitely encourage you to check out the film. It's really wonderful. And not only because of David's work, but of course, the Dalai Lama's contributions, as well as Pumla's amazing work on truth and reconciliation. You can watch the film for free on our website at mindandlife.org. And there's also a link in the show notes for this episode. I had the opportunity to interview David Sloan Wilson in 2019 before the event in Dharamsala. And in our conversation, he expands on a lot of the ideas that he shared there with the Dalai Lama. David's work in evolutionary biology extends beyond genetics to include personal and cultural evolution. In our conversation, we discuss key evolutionary ideas like competition and cooperation, with a focus on the essential role of pro-social behavior in human evolution. David then scales these ideas into what he calls multi-level selection, and he talks about the possibility of conscious evolution. Along the way, we discuss what it means to be part of a social group, how we can expand the notion of self, and becoming bilingual in both scientific and spiritual perspectives. David shares his thoughts on how evolutionary theory relates to religious and spiritual traditions, and the need to create an ethics for the whole world, a view that the Dalai Lama has also championed in recent years. David has also worked with Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom, and he shares how he uses her core design principles to give us a structure, even a roadmap, for creating more egalitarian and compassionate communities. I love how David can simultaneously hold the rigor of being a scientist alongside the possibilities of more spiritual experience for creating social change. I find David's work fascinating and a really important lens to consider in the midst of today's challenges. And I hope it expands your idea of what it means to be a human living on this planet. And with that, it's my great pleasure to share with you David Sloan Wilson. 
David Sloan Wilson. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Wendy. So you have a new book called This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. And your opening line, which I really loved, is uh, whatever you think you currently know about evolution, please move it to one side to make room for what I'm about to share in the pages of this book. So what is the traditional view of evolution and, and what are you bringing that requires us to set it aside? Well, the traditional view of evolution uh, in the first place is confined to genetic evolution. So around the world, for experts and lay people alike, uh, if you say the word evolution, they hear the word genes. So one way that this goes beyond it is by going beyond genetic evolution. Uh, evolution in its most general form is any process that includes the ingredients of variation, selection, and replication. And so that includes cultural evolution and also our personal evolution, because each and every one of us is an open-ended process uh, that is capable of evolving. Another way I think that uh, this view of life differs from what many people think about evolution concerns a reductionism. Mm -hmm. So evolution is about genes. It's also about selfishness, individual selfishness, gene selfishness, as opposed to societies as cooperative units. Of course, we think an organism must be an individual, uh, but the idea that a society might be an organism, mm. uh, does that have a scientific basis? Uh, Gaia, could the whole world be mm. an organism? Uh, most people think that evolution is, has no purpose. Uh, things merely vary and are only selected by the environment. But might evolution have a purpose? Could there be such a thing as conscious evolution? And so here again, uh, let me list them. Beyond genetic evolution, not reductionistic, and conscious. So I think some listeners may have concerns when you speak about um, applying evolution to societal or cultural domains. For some people, I think the idea of uh, social Darwinism can emerge. And you bring this up in your book and lay it out very clearly about how this is different from that. Can you explain social Darwinism and, and how this is different? Sure. Uh, social Darwinism is the idea that uh, evolution is a competitive process, and that's a good thing, that the way society should be run is for the strong or the fit to replace the um, unfit. So that leads to uh, social practices that often justify inequality. Uh, so we shouldn't have a social safety net. We should just let evolution take its course. Mm -hmm. uh, the same might be true at the racial level. And so it has been said that uh, Darwin's theory has been used to justify these practices that justify uh, inequality. But that is actually a very uh, uh, severe misrendering mm. of the actual impact uh, of Darwin's theory on these topics. And so the real history is more interesting and more varied. So let me just tell you about the real history. And this is all backed up by very good scholarship, by the way. There's a single chapter in my book that's devoted to it, but there's a lot of scholarship mm -hmm. behind it. Uh, do you know that the first people that really glommed on to Darwin's theory of, of evolution, and not only that, some of the theories of evolution that preceded it, because Darwin was not the first evolutionist. Right. There were other evolutionaries in Darwin's day. And what evolution meant then was that the social order is not fixed. Authoritarian regimes, king and, and pope, these were not, the social order was not fixed. Mm -hmm. Things could change. And so it was actually the socialists of the day 
who were most excited by the possibilities of Darwin's theory because for them it justified the idea of social change. The future need not mm -hmm. be like the past. So we call that socialist Darwinism. Uh -huh. And social Darwinism actually was a reaction to socialist mm -hmm. Darwinism. Then we have the philosophical tradition of pragmatism, which originated in the United States and is represented by beloved figures such as William James and, and John Dewey, who was a beloved social reformer. They were inspired by evolution and actually in a way that got evolution right. Because once again, if Darwin is correct, our entire human conception of, of reality is going to be based more on the survival values of that conception than any direct apprehension of the external world. Oh, say more about that. Well, of course, there is a world out there that's independent of what we choose to believe. Mm -hmm. It's very important to say that. An oncoming bus exists regardless of whether you choose to believe it right. or not. If you don't step out of the way, you will be dead. Yep. So yes, there is a world out there independent of what we believe. But as products of evolution, what we believe and what we evolve to believe is much more concerned with the survival values of those beliefs, not their direct apprehension of reality. And that's why we find it so difficult to see the world as it really is. It's why we defend fictions. When we talk about fake news, right. belief in supernatural agents, uh, belief in our own past, our personal belief in the way we are as, as individuals, all of these, you might say, are distorted in ways that enhance our survival. And so the pragmatists took this on very seriously, mm -hmm. and it led them to a very experimental approach to the way we think in relation to how we act. And so here was a very positive application of Darwin's theory. No one calls it social <laughs> Darwinism. Right. And then people say that Hitler was influenced by Darwin. Not at all. I mean, there's plenty of scholarship to show that Hitler was influenced by other ideologies. And so for some reason, we have this kind of a bogeyman story that there's something especially dangerous about Darwin's mm. theory of evolution. If we believe it, it will lead us to do these terrible things. And that is not true historically. And of course, it need not be true moving mm -hmm. forward. What we are trying to do, like the pragmatists, like John Dewey, is we were trying to evolve our future. We are trying to manage the cultural evolutionary process to achieve our normative goals, ultimately at the planetary scale. I dedicate the book to all who are reaching for an ethics for the whole earth. Yeah. And that is very similar to the Dalai Lama's title, Beyond Religion, right. towards an ethics for the whole world. Yeah. This is maybe a bit of a sidebar, but something you said just made me think of more connections with our community. Um, are you familiar with the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett or Anil Seth as cognitive scientists and the group of people who are looking at processes in the mind and brain um, through the lens of prediction and also construction? So a lot about how our perception is, in fact, mostly constructed and not necessarily accurately representing the world, but constructed in a way that is useful right. for us, as well as even to the level of um, our emotions are also constructed in this way of representing our internal bodily states. And so there's a lot of interesting intersections. Yeah, so this is much in the same line, all oriented towards the survival of relatively small units, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps the individual, perhaps the family, perhaps 
a social group, uh, perhaps even a nation. But all of those are lower level units compared to the true common good, all people and all of nature. So it's in that sense that the Buddhist doctrine of suffering, basically, that suffering exists. Yes, that's exactly what we expect from an evolutionary perspective. Evolution doesn't make everything nice. Right. Evolution typically results in behaviors that benefit me, not you, mm -hmm. us, not them, and our short-term welfare, not our long-term welfare. So all of that striving leads to suffering. And the way we can escape that is to somehow abandon a sense of self, or perhaps you might call it an expanded sense of self. So how interesting is that, this mapping of pure science? I want to say that this, you know, science says this. Mm -hmm. And uh, on to uh, core Buddhist thought. Yeah, there are really very many interesting intersections. You were just speaking about the, the concept of self and how that uh, needs to be expanded or sometimes maybe even dissolves. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning of your book how both spiritual or religious imagination and secular or scientific, potentially, imaginations, um, while they seem so different often, they have arrived at the same conclusion that um, the concept of organism has a movable boundary and that needs to be expanded um, in order to deal with the problems we're facing. So by organism there, um, it jumped out at me as, as also maybe this idea of the concept of self. Is that, um, would you say that's how it applies for us as humans? Yeah, let me elaborate on yeah. that and actually perhaps take a little time because there's something Please, that yeah. can be said for the human world, but there's also something that could be said for the natural mm -hmm. world. And I am trained as an evolutionary biologist. Mm -hmm. I spent much of my career studying non-human species, insects, birds, fish, zooplankton, yeah. great stuff like uh, that. But isn't it curious that if you take, for example, uh, the spiritual domain that I think is represented so well by a mind and life, and you might say the Dalai Lama would be a representative of that, then let's take economics, mm. which seems like barren of <laughs> of any of that. It's purely a secular topic, mm -hmm. um, seemingly dedicated to self-interest. And yet right. at the same time, economic systems, of course, need to work at a large scale. The idea of a corporation basically treats a group as an individual. And so the goal of economics, even capitalist, even the capitalist variety, in order for it to be justified, basically you have to say this capitalist system based on self-interest works out for the common good mm -hmm. and ultimately at the global scale. And so whether you take the economic path or the spiritual path, there's still some sense of an organism-like quality to things that are larger than organisms, becoming part of something larger than oneself. And so they're both driving towards the same thing. Now, in biology, it turns out that everything we call an organism, such as you and me, mm -hmm. or a single-celled creature like an amoeba or a paramecium, and they have nuclei the way that we do, or bacterium, which don't have nuclei, or social insect colonies, which we feel impelled to call superorganisms, mm -hmm. all because these units are so darned cooperative. Like bees and like ants. bees and ants, yeah. and, and of course the cells of our bodies mm -hmm. or the organelles of our 
uh, cells, their parts work so harmoniously for the benefit of the whole that uh, that's why we call them organisms. But in each and every case, they evolved from groups, groups mm. that were less cooperative in the distant past. And so what has become established in evolutionary theory is this idea that when groups become sufficiently cooperative, something that does not happen all that often, then what's called a major transition occurs and uh, the group becomes a new higher level organism. So that's a straight up biological result. And if it weren't amazing enough, then our species represents such a transition. Hmm. Uh, so we are so much more cooperative within our groups than our closest primate relatives, chimps and bonobos. And bonobos are more cooperative than chimps, mm -hmm. and neither one are nearly as cooperative as our species. So we could actually explain just about everything that's distinctive about our species, mentally, in addition to physically, as a product of cooperation. First, we became highly cooperative, and then just about everything else that we associate with our species, including our capacity for symbolic thought hmm. and our ability to transmit large amounts of learned knowledge across generations, in other words, cultural hmm. evolution. All of these are could not happen without a high degree of cooperation, much of it unconscious. Right. We cooperate in ways that we don't even think of as cooperation. It takes place beneath our conscious awareness. You speak in your book that I thought was really interesting about the role of violence in pushing our ability to be cooperative or our need to be cooperative. Can you explain that? Yeah, you don't want to make too much or too little about the role of violent between group mm -hmm. or between individual competition. And uh, in some recent work that we're doing, uh, I work with a, a great scholar of um, evolution named uh, Eric Michael Johnson. And uh, he just wrote a little piece that uh, talks about what did Darwin mean by the struggle for existence, mm. the term that he used. And he was very careful to say that he meant it in a large and metaphorical sense. It could mean a direct struggle, mm -hmm. or it could mean struggling against the elements, plants struggling against a drought. They're not interacting with each other at all, but the more drought-resistant plant will still outcompete the less drought-resistant plant. Or even mutualism intraspecific mutualisms or interspecific mutualisms that are collectively succeeding and outcompeting other collectives that are not so well coordinating. All of this fell under what Darwin called the struggle for existence. Mm. Now, when we think about human evolution and uh, the fact that uh, we became so cooperative, it was a form of between-group selection. So there has to be some sense in which some groups did better than other groups and replace them. So we can call that competition, but we have to do it in a large and metaphorical sense. Sometimes it was by direct conflict, warfare, mm -hmm. yes. Sometimes it was just fighting against the elements without groups interacting with each other mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Those that survived the elements outcompeted mm -hmm. those that didn't. Or it could be, of course, as collectives, they outcompeted other, other collectives. So that's basically saying don't make too much out of direct mm -hmm. conflict. And yet at the same time, we need to be realistic and we need to appreciate that as far back as we can measure, then direct conflict has been a very important evolutionary force for both genetic evolution and for cultural evolution. And so between group conflict 
And within group cooperation, perversely and paradoxically, have been uh, joined at the hip. Mm -hmm. Not something we want for the future, right. but something that we have to say about the past in order to just be true to, to what happened. Right. speaking about our increasing cooperative capacity as, as a species. How do you link that back to the ideas we were talking about around self? Is this what you are conceiving of by kind of an expansion of, of the self? Yeah, when we get back to the idea of the self and try to relate it to the Buddhist discussions on that topic, uh, what it means is, is that um, uh, there's a sense in which groups can qualify as individuals mm -hmm. as organisms. This is also true for human groups. And so the idea that we're part of something larger than ourselves is something that really should come quite naturally to us. Mm -hmm. The self is not just the individual person, not necessarily the individual person. And conceivably, with cultural constructions, it's very important that cultural evolution has to do some of this work mm -hmm. because genetically, we're really primarily adapted to life in small groups. What does that mean? It means that if you were to get 10 people and put them on an island and uh, really threaten their existence, uh, then uh, they would um, probably cooperate a whole bunch. In fact, we know that this is true in life and death situations, such as warfare, back to warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, my father, who was a World War II captain of a Coast Guard mm -hmm. supply ship, and so many other soldiers in all wars, reflect upon it as the best time mm. of their life and their love for their comrades who they might not have known well. In fact, my father has stories about, as captain, he had nothing in common with the crew members. But when they were in a life and death situation, they had that bond of mm. love for their comrades. And so we have a kind of hive mind mm. which can be triggered by these uh, situations. And so it's in that case that the self becomes the group, mm -hmm. and the individual becomes a participant who is actually willing to die mm. for the group. Mm. That is part of the human repertoire, uh, only triggered under some mm -hmm. situations. That's fascinating. It, it feels like, um, yeah, so much in our current society moves away from, <laughs> from that idea um, you were speaking earlier about economics. I'm thinking of the idea of homo economicus and this very self-serving, self-interested uh, view of, of how we should operate. And I'm also thinking of all the research that is piling up about the value and the importance of social connectivity for our well-being and our health. Yeah. And let me reflect upon both of those things, and it involves our friend and colleague, Jim Cohen, yeah. who has just here accompanied me to this meeting. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the intellectual tradition of individualism. Mm -hmm. And before I do that, I want to note that uh, Darwin, back in his day, that was the Victorian era. And as smart as he was uh, about evolution, uh, there were some ways that he thought that were just products of the Victorian culture that he had no more ability to see through than anyone else. Uh, and so the idea that European culture was superior to 
all other cultures, almost everyone, you couldn't find a person who mm. didn't think mm -hmm. that, uh, went without saying for him that men were superior to women. Um, he couldn't see through his, mm -hmm. his culture. And so time was required for us to see those elements that we need to discard mm -hmm. as artifacts of the Victorian era, and then to look at, um, at the theory, evolutionary theory, and a little bit without those biases. Okay, so there's a whole piece there. Well, what are our biases? Mm -hmm. What is it that we have great difficulty seeing through? Right. What is the water that the fish can't see? And it's individualism. Mm -hmm. It's individualism. For the last 50 years, it has been an article of faith that everything has to be explained in terms of the individual as some kind of autonomous unit. And that's true for economics uh, big time, but mm -hmm. it extends beyond economics. Mm. It's true for the social sciences, which took a big individualistic swing. It's mm. called methodological individualism. Mm. And it's true for evolution. This was the same period, about the middle of the 20th century, that evolution, my field of evolution, took its individualistic swing. Everything had to be explained first by self-interest and then by genetic interest. And I think it also pervades the mindfulness-based literature. I'm most familiar with the psychological literature on mindfulness-based therapies, ACT, and other forms mm -hmm. of mindfulness-based therapies. But I think it's also true from contemplative traditions that, once again, it's the individual that is the unit. It's the work of the individual to manage their minds in some sense, either through a meditational process or a therapeutic process an unquestioning attachment to the individual person. And so part of this development of saying that the concept of the self and the organism has a movable boundary and something above the level of the individual can be the self, can be the organism, and then the individual becomes a, a part of that is what we're now, we're moving towards. We're, we're leaving the era the individualistic era, in the same way that we left the Victorian mm -hmm. era. And we're moving into this very interesting multi-level era where the, 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 the level of functional organization is actually a movable boundary. And uh, what that reveals is our need to expand that boundary ultimately to the whole earth. So the idea of Gaia, the idea of the whole earth as an organism, is something that does not currently exist. It is not the case that the whole earth functions like an organism, mm. but it could. Mm. And so our job is to make that happen, is to bring Gaia into being, if you want to talk about it in spiritual terms. Or you could also talk about it in purely secular terms. Our job is to create a cultural and social system that works for everyone and for the planet. That's the secular project, and it is the spiritual project. One thing you mentioned is the current state of kind of the contemplative research world and how it's been very focused on outcomes for the individual who is practicing, which I couldn't agree more. I think that this is definitely the case, and that's um, something that we've been aware of here at Mind and Life and have wanted to foster and, and help push forward into um, more interpersonal relationships and social domains. In a way, it makes sense because, you know, to begin, it's it's one individual practicing and ostensibly changing their own mind, um, but then it can, you know, have a larger, obviously a larger impact from the social domain. So do you have any thoughts about what kinds of outcomes or maybe what kinds of 
frames we could bring into um, this field of research that can help advance into these larger units? Sure, sure I do. And I would like to take the opportunity to showcase Jim Cohen's work. Please. Yeah. Um, and he has his own podcast and yeah. uh, he has a, a YouTube presence and so on. Mm -hmm. So just look up Jim Cohen, Why We Hold Hands. Yeah. But here's the short version of the story. So, uh, so he's a clinical neuroscientist. And so that means he sees clients. And he was working with an old World War II vet who was experiencing uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, late in life. And the old man would not respond to anything that Jim was asking him to do. He was totally resistant to therapy. And at one point he said, I want my wife with me. And Jim had never had that request before. But he said, okay, and his wife came. And at first uh, Jim treated his wife as a bystander and the old man was no more receptive than before. And then his wife stepped in and said, let me hold his hand. And as soon as they held hands, he became responsive to therapy. Very responsive, mm. more than Jim's other patients. Well, Jim was amazed. <laughs> and so he said, what is going on in the brain of this fellow? Yeah. And so he embarked upon a research program with everyday people, not suffering from any trauma. Uh, but he, he traumatized them by, with threat of electric shock. So you're in an fMRI machine, which is uncomfortable enough, in addition to that, you have electrodes strapped to your ankle, and then there's a light which indicates whether you know you have a 20% chance of being shocked. So they're stressed, and their brain is in turmoil, and he's measuring it in the machine. Mm -hmm. And so under three conditions, alone, holding the hands of a stranger, or holding the hand of a loved one. And the loved one condition had the same amazing effect as the old man holding the hand of his wife. So Jim was able to duplicate the effect in any one of us. In terms of reducing the threat systems activity in yes, the brain? Yes, exactly. Holding the hand of the loved one. And so this led him to something called social baseline theory, which notes the following. And uh, actually on his podcast, The Circle of Willis, uh, there's a pair of interviews in which he first interviews me and then I interview him. And it's a fascinating story because it shows how Jim, highly trained as a neuroscientist, clinical neuroscientist, and of course familiar with evolution in a way, didn't really get this view of life mm. the way I write about it in my book uh, until a certain point in his career. And he says, he was looking back now to our ancestral past and saying, what's the common denominator of human life during our evolutionary history. We, we occupied all climatic zones, dozens of ecological niches. What was in common? And the one thing in common was that all at all times and all places, most people were living in highly cooperative groups. They had so much social support in their groups, even if those groups were in conflict with other groups. And so to be in a highly cooperative group was the one constant of our evolutionary past. And because of that, the brain, our brains and bodies, have evolved to seamlessly integrate personal resources and social resources in making their many trade-off decisions. And some research by Jim's colleague, Dennis Prophet, illustrates this perfectly. Uh, he takes people to the base of a tall hill and ask them to estimate its slope, which they do. 
And then he has them do that under a number of conditions in which he depletes their personal resources. It might be by fasting or not, carrying a heavy backpack or not, having a workout or not. And you might think that when we deplete your personal resources, then you're less inclined to climb the hill. Mm -hmm. But the curious thing is that you actually perceive the hill as more steep. And there is another case where what we perceive is different from reality. Exactly. Right. We are wired to see the world in different ways, depending upon how we're interacting mm -hmm. with the world. So against that background, there's a fourth condition is to add a social resource. You alone at the base of the hill or you standing next to a friend. You're not holding hands in this case, <laughs> but just having a friend next to you makes you want to climb that hill and makes that hill seem less steep. And so what the brain has done in making its trade-off decisions with all of its perceptual correlates is, is in a sense not distinguished between its personal resources and its social resources. Mm -hmm. Both get factored into this effort of climbing the hill. And so what that means is, is that to be not in a strong, supportive, cooperative group is stressful and unusual. Based on our evolutionary past, mm. it's pathological for you not to be in a supportive group. And the most therapeutic thing that you can do is to get you to a group of people that you're, you know and they know you, you're held accountable by their actions, and you're doing something important together. That's the most therapeutic thing mm. that you can do. Not manage your mind and do all of this stuff, which might work also, mm -hmm. but that the problem is, is that you're solo. Mm -hmm. You're solo. Mm. And what you need to do is you need to enter the, an environment in which you have social resources that are perceived tangible to the many mechanisms of our brains and bodies, which are largely through unconscious mechanisms, mechanisms mm -hmm. that we, we don't even know it's happening. Right. And touching is a part of that. I mean, if nobody's touching you, are you a member of a group? I mean, you could be, but to be touched, not in a sexual way, right. to be touched in a, in a prosocial way is the most reliable indicator of social support mm. is, that, is that somebody is there at your side mm -hmm. touching you. That is the most reliable signal that you have social support and the brain and the body responds accordingly. Yeah, this is fascinating. I love this this line of work and the line of thinking. You bring this up um, with the touching in your book too, right? Because this has policy implications possibly for certainly in schools and in situations with youth. It has moved very much away from any kind of touching out of a you know protective sense to avoid any kind of um, sexual inappropriateness um, from adults. But at the same time, right, there might be these negative outcomes of that if children aren't feeling that kind of connectedness. Yeah, everything we do, most everything we do has some rationale. Mm -hmm. And so if you look, and now if we change our focus a little bit and we look at how we educate and raise our children, then um, everything we do has some rationale. Uh, we don't want sexual harassment, so we implement no touching rules. That makes sense. Uh, it's really important to learn the three R's, and so let's begin early. Let's have academic training in preschool. It's more efficient to uh, split kids into uh, age groups, so let's do that. Uh, all of these things have a rationale. Uh, they make sense, but that doesn't mean that they actually work as intended. And one of the great 
benefits of this view of life is that it provides a different theory, a different way of looking at the world, which can actually reveal some of these things that are have terrible unforeseen consequences and suggest things that we can do uh, differently. And that's not only true for no-touch rules, but it's also true for all the other things that I just mm-hmm. listed. It turns out that uh, to teach academic subjects too early, not a good mm. idea. To restrict play, not a good idea. Right. To restrict age mix play, terrible idea. And what ends up making sense is so commonsensical and as things that come for free. We were talking dinner yesterday and we, everyone is reflecting upon their childhood. And they said, yeah, well, you know, when I was small, then, you know, my mom just said, go out and right. come back until dinner. And we, yep. we joined up and we played in the woods. We made forts and stuff yep. like that. And we didn't think anyone was going to kidnap us. And, right. and so that was so great, they say. And uh, yes, it was. It turns out that um, that's the way childhood has always taken place mm-hmm. in the distant past. And so much development, social development, intellectual development, executive function takes place in this way. And we never knew. We never knew. Right. And so now we've taken it away and we're finding out. No, we're not finding out. Actually, we, all we know is we're surrounded by suffering. Mm. Yeah. And we don't know why. We're basically lost in a maze of unforeseen consequences. We don't know why. And that's the benefit of a theory. That's the benefit of the right theory Mm -hmm. that actually helps explain why and gives us some ideas, which of course are never certain. And that leads to another message is that the best a theory can do is outline possibilities. And after that, you have to experiment. Experiment, experiment, experiment. And another word for experiment is manage the cultural evolutionary process. A key part of the theory that you're laying out in your book is this idea of multi-level selection. Um, And we've been talking about it in various ways, I think, already. But can you just unpack that clearly for our listeners? Sure. Um, The the quick way I do that is to ask your listeners to imagine playing the game of Monopoly. We've all played that game, Mm -hmm. and we know its purpose. It is to capture all the real estate and to drive everyone else bankrupt. So uh, Monopoly is all about competition among individuals within a single group, individuals beating members of their own group. So imagine playing that game. And now imagine playing a Monopoly tournament where there's many games in play and the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops the property the fastest. Well, it's also easy to imagine playing that game. And if you do, I actually have played it with with kids. It's very funny to do it. So everyone on the board is trying to build the properties together? Together. As a team. Right. So we had them. First, they were playing the, the regular game. Single winner. And then we said, stop. We're going to change the rules. And then we saw what Interesting. happened. It was very, very Yeah, what happened with the kids? Well, what I think everyone out there can appreciate is that almost every decision you make playing in a tournament will be different than playing the single game of Monopoly. So that's the difference between succeeding in within-group competition. That's within-group selection. And this has a whole evolutionary counterpart. In nature, competition takes place at various levels that takes place among individuals within groups, and that leads to monopoly-like 
behaviors, disruptive behaviors, behaviors that are not good for the whole group. They're just good for me compared to you. So there's a level of natural selection that takes place there, but also there's a level that takes place like the Monopoly tournament, that the behaviors that cause us all to do well can be selected compared to more mm -hmm. dysfunctional behaviors. And so that's two-level selection. It explains why cooperation does not automatically evolve. Cooperation requires between-group selection mm -hmm. and is undermined by within-group selection. Now we can stretch it out and we can think, for example, about two-level selection in which the upper level is the individual, such as yourself, and the lower level is your genes hmm. or your cells. And then we see that something like cancer is like the single game hmm. of monopoly. Cancer cells proliferate at the expense of the other cells. They're winning the game of monopoly in which you are the board. Level. Right, <laughs> right. But a cell that actually participates in the body, the normal cell, is like playing the monopoly tournament. Right. And then we can go up in scale. So in human terms, what we have is this, this dynamic that repeats itself at every rung of a multi-tier hierarchy. What's good for me can be bad for my family. What's good for my family can be bad for my clan. What's good for my clan can be bad for my nation. What's good for my nation can be bad for the world. So that is multi-level selection. And what it shows is, is that any striving at any one of these lower levels, striving for myself, my clan, my nation, my corporation, just striving for that is going to produce suffering, dysfunction higher up the mm -hmm. scale. And of course, all the global problems are based on lower level mm. striving. Nations trying to grow their economies, for example, it's the perfect example. Mm. Nations trying to grow their economies are, are, have led to all of these global problems. And so the inevitable conclusion, another thing where we can say, science says this with a high degree of confidence, is that if we want to achieve global welfare, then we must select our practices with global welfare in mind. It is not the case that the pursuit of lower-level interests robustly benefits the common good. That's the metaphor of the invisible hand, that somehow we can just pursue our interests without having the welfare of others in mind, and that'll like work It'll out work as out. it's led by a by an invisible hand? Absolutely not. That is profoundly not the case. And so uh, now there is a sense, maybe we'll get to, in which the invisible hand metaphor does work, but only in societies that we have constructed mm. so that individual interests are appropriately regulated and channeled and so on. And in such a society that has been created by cultural group selection, then it is possible for the participants of that society to pursue their local hmm. interests, mm -hmm. but only in the society that's been so constructed. There's no right. self-organization that will ever do that for you. And we can say all of these things with a high degree of confidence. So how can we go about, you know, I think part of your um, argument in the book is that we need to make a conscious shift and a very intentional shift into constructing these kinds of societies and systems. Um, how can we do that? It feels like a very difficult coordination problem, right, at the, at the global level. It is, but it's also manageable. Mm. And this provides an opportunity to make some points about religions, mm. including Buddhism, but also all religions, we can focus on their spiritual aspects and how they prepare the mind 
uh, orient the mind towards a higher good and, and, and so on and so forth. But that's not good enough. It must translate into action. And that action involves not just like a well-meaning individual acting upon being well-meaning. There's so much structure, social organization right. that is required for that. And uh, in my book, Darwin's Cathedral, which I wrote quite a while ago, I made a special study of Calvinism, hmm. which was a religion in the, that arose in the Protestant Reformation in the city of Geneva, which worked so well that it became a model for other Protestant faiths. And uh, in my analysis, I showed that uh, not only was there a catechism and a whole theology associated uh, with it, the doctrine of original sin, and when you interpret it correctly, the whole concept of, of God and your relationship to God and forgiveness, all of this stuff, which is like part of the Christian canon, you could really see as a way of, of taking the individual and orienting them to be a member of the, of the group. But in addition, there had to be a whole set of rules about who the leadership was, who makes decisions. The city had to be divided into sectors. Each sector had to be overseen by an elder. The elder had to be accepted by the those under him. And, and by it went on and on as to the social organization hmm. that accompanied the theology. And of course, with Buddhism, we have your monks and your monasteries, and all of which is, is basically being sanctioned by the state so that when people of the society in the daily round of their lives are assisted by the religion. And the religion persists in cultural evolutionary time because it works well at the mm. societal level. And so we must create this structure, that religions have that structure. And if we want to construct something, then we must also have that structure. What's it going to look like? And we can say even more than that. We can say that it needs to be multi-level. It needs to be multicellular, you mm. might say. And so that means that um, there has to be the cellular level or, or groups. So we have to get people interacting in groups. Is there a certain size that's like, you speak a lot about the small group as a, a fundamental unit in this process. Is there kind of bounds on what constitutes a small group? There is bounds, but it's quite contextual. Mm. So uh, I'll bet a lot of your listeners have heard of Dunbar's number. Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Which is this, you know, we can only have relationships with a relatively small 150 or so on. Right. But actually, that's too big mm -hmm. for many kinds of groups. Mm -hmm. so, so really, I mean, 12 is the group that the Christians, those are the mm. number of apostles. Mm -hmm. And um, and so uh, that turns out to be a pretty good unit for some mm -hmm. things. Uh, actually, it's based a lot on the task. And, right. and do you know, there's many tasks best done by a single individual. Mm -hmm. And to try to have groups do those tasks just gets in the way. Right. Uh, groups, there's coordination problems, all kinds of stuff. So actually, strangely enough, if you can con configure things so that we can do things as individuals, please let's. <laughs> you know, there's nothing intrinsically good about a group. But for tough problems, then those surpass individuals. And then you need to have the right number of groups uh, which need to be organized in the right way. And every business confronts this mm -hmm. when they start out or every nonprofit a small number of people that are passionate, their interests are aligned. They actually don't need a lot of structure because of, their, because of those reasons. But as they grow, then new people come in, conflicts arise. It's at that point that you need to add structure. Mm -hmm. But there needs to be that cellular building block. And then they need to start interacting with each other. And uh, someone we haven't mentioned yet, but is a major figure in my book, is Eleanor Ostrom. Mm -hmm. 
and she, with her husband, Vincent Ostrom, did foundational work both at the level of single groups and at the level of multiple groups, and they called that polycentric governance. And what that means is life consists of many spheres of activity. Each sphere has an optimal scale. That makes sense. And so good governance requires finding the optimal scale for each activity and appropriately coordinating among the scales. How could it be otherwise? Seems straightforward, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet governance is seldom like that. Right, right. And so between a combination of, of a combination of Ostrom's work on single groups, uh, generalized from an evolutionary perspective, and I was privileged to work with Ostrom, that's what we did. And then the idea of polycentric governance provides the structure that's needed to go along with the theory and the, and mm -hmm. the psychological orientation that motivates individuals to take part in all of this. We could go to any locality and pick any topic. It might be sustainability or health or urban renewal or something that needs to be done. And then we can, in the first place, form groups, action groups, teams to do it. That's going to be a big part of the solution because mm -hmm. that's going to be great for individual thriving. Individuals come to life in that situation, and then they're more efficacious as a group than they ever would be just as an individual. Just think if you really wanted to take sustainability seriously, you wanted to recycle and mm -hmm. do all of that stuff, eat right and stuff like that, and you were to do it as an individual compared to joining a committed group to help each other do that. I think anyone can see that that would work better. And then you can work with those groups to be strong and to achieve their purpose, and then to make sure their purpose is actually pro-social up the scale, that they're part of the solution, not part of the problem in what they're doing so well. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to offer this to street gangs or drug cartels right. or terrorist cells. We want to offer it to groups that actually want to extend their pro-sociality up the scale. And that's going to be very experimental. As we've just said, nobody really knows what to do. Mm -hmm. All we can do is make our best guesses, and then we have to experiment. That's variation and selection, mm -hmm. variation and selection with a higher good in mind. And it's at that point that we can then take what we call the meso scale. Micro is a single group, meso is a multi-group ecosystem, and then coordinate that with other meso scale units. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that you could imagine working up to the macro scale, which is the global scale, mm -hmm. providing the values for all scales and the ultimate goal for coordination and structure. So micro, meso, macro can be applied to any domain. We're beginning to think that here we have a plan for a structure to go along with our meaning system mm -hmm. that orients, that kind of motivates the whole thing psychologically. Another thing that came out of the work you were just mentioning uh, was a set of what you called core design principles. Could you go through those briefly? Um, they seem to be really good advice for you know groups wanting to work in this way. Right. Be very happy to uh, uh, to do that, and I can do it in two stages. One is as Eleanor Ostrom developed them, and then as why they make so much sense from an evolutionary perspective and why they're so general. 
So Ostrom was a political scientist, and she studied the famous tragedy of the commons, the idea that when a group of people are drawing upon a common resource, such as a forest or a pasture or fishery or uh, the groundwater, mm -hmm. let us say that there's a temptation for each member to take more than their share, and that leads to the overexploitation of the resource. And this was treated as kind of inevitable, and the only way to prevent it would be either to privatize the resource so that each individual manages their patch, and that's sometimes not possible, or to impose some kind of top-down regulation. Mm -hmm. And what Ostrom showed by actually studying groups... <laughs> groups that had done it successfully. Well, yeah. any group is trying to do it. What she showed was, and a lot of these were traditional groups, not all, that in the first place, they varied in how well they managed their resource. Not everyone did it well, mm -hmm. but some did. And those that did possessed certain, what she called core design principles. It was the blueprint for managing their commons. So those core design principles, here they are. Uh, and I want your listeners to have some group in mind, some group that's important in their lives to see if these core design principles might work well for those groups. So first and foremost, there must be a strong sense of identity and purpose. So members must know that they're part of a group, that it's an important group. Who's in? Who's out? What they're supposed to do. So a strong sense of identity and purpose was critical. Number two, proportional costs and benefits. It's not sustainable for some members to get the benefit while other members do all the work. There has to be some sense in which what members get from the group is proportional to what they give to the group. Number three, decision-making should be inclusive. It's not sustainable for some members of the group to call the shots and for others to be cut out of the decision-making process. Need not be by strict consensus. We have efficiency mm -hmm. considerations, but there has to be some openness and transparency to the decision-making process, in part because uh, members have something to contribute to decisions. If decisions are made without some members, well, you're losing information. Mm -hmm. Number four, monitoring agreed upon behaviors. Unless we can actually know whether you're behaving as we should, then, of course, misbehaviors can take place. Number five, graduated sanctions. Let's, not, let's say that you're not behaving as you should. Something needs to be done about that, but it need not be mean or harsh starting out. And religions have many great examples of this, that a brotherly admonition mm -hmm. is the first step, is, hey, brother, come <laughs> on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that keeps most people in solid citizen mode, but not always. And in those cases, it is uh, necessary to escalate, ultimately to exclusion. Mm -hmm. And also, in addition to sanctioning uh, misbehaviors, it's important to praise good behaviors. And so the rule is abundant praise for good behaviors coupled with mild punishment for bad behaviors that escalates only when necessary. Number six is conflict resolution. Conflicts will occur eventually, and they have to be resolved in a way which is fast and perceived as fair because most parties of a dispute think that they have a point of view and it's not shouldn't be just about winners and losers. It's about reconciliating conflict. Number seven, local autonomy. For a group to do those other things, it must be able to manage its own affairs. Mm -hmm. And so if they're being constrained by outside forces, they simply cannot do those other things. And so elbow room 
is required. And then finally, number eight, appropriate relations with other groups. And those relations must reflect the same design principles that exist within groups. And this is so important mm -hmm. because it means that these core design principles are scale independent. Right. They're needed for intergroup relations in addition to within group relations, all the way up to, for example, discussions of the European Union right. and uh, the global economy, international relations are all going to reflect the same principles. And we get so much insight by taking these large scale problems and shrinking them down and asking, what would these look like if it was just a single small group of individuals? What would it look like? Right. And then expanding it back up. So there they are, the eight principles. And um, I think that most of your listeners are thinking, yeah, that might apply to the group that I had in mind. And what I did with uh, Lynn Ostrom was to show that these principles are not just needed for managing common pool resources, they're useful for any cooperative endeavor mm -hmm. at all. There's a sense in which cooperation is a common pool resource. And if you look at it from multi-level selection terms, what you can see is that if these core design principles are strongly implemented, then it's very hard to play the single game of monopoly. Mm -hmm. Just try it. <laughs> Just try to do something that's in your interest and not in the interest of the group and see what happens. Yeah. So what the core design principles do is they protect you against disruptive, self-serving behaviors, including those that are unconscious and well-meaning, because many groups function poorly, not because there's a selfish individual, but let us say there's somebody that's so passionate about the group that they, they try to override mm -hmm. other people. So they have the welfare of the group in mind, but they're being domineering in, in how they do it, for example or somebody that's so passionate that they volunteer to do all the work, and so you get this big work imbalance, and then they burn out, and uh, so there wasn't proportional costs and on benefits. So it's not just a matter of like well-meaning people versus selfish people. It's much more complicated than that. If you think of a group that's deficient in these core design principles, and imagine someone playing the single game of monopoly, well, it's likely they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. And so what implementing those core design principles does is it accomplishes a, a miniature major transition in cultural evolution. So now most of the change that takes place is going to be the teamwork variety, not the disruptive competition variety. And now in my book, I, I review many kinds of groups, schools, neighborhoods, businesses, and much of my research is now centered on actually working with groups in mm. real-world situation in order to help them implement the core design principles and in other respects evolve their futures. Is that your work at the Evolution Institute? Yep, yeah. and ProSocial. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, if you go to prosocial.world, then there's a website that explains all of this. And with uh, two colleagues, Paul Atkins and Steve Hayes, we have a new book coming out called ProSocial which at book length explains this methodology okay. basically for helping groups uh, internally and in the construction of uh, multi-group cultural ecosystems. Great. I appreciate how you were saying that those core design principles can kind of level up to larger scale. Are there any examples of, you know, you mentioned the global economy, for example, are there any examples of um, ways that that these have been taken up at large scales, or is there any movement there? There's lots of movement, and we can begin with uh, a comparison of nations. Um, our current nations, what is there, 195 of them or something, almost 200 nations. 
And when you study them, they vary tremendously in how well they function. Mm. And just like the group studied by Eleanor Ostrom. And there's books written on this topic. Uh, one is called The Spirit Level. The other is called Why Nations Fail. Mm. And what all of these books show is that the nations that function best are the most inclusive ones. They do the best job sharing the benefits of the society. And to make a long story short, they're the ones that implement the core design mm -hmm. principles at the national scale. The nations that work least are called extractive, and they're run by a small group of elites for their benefit, not for the benefit of the whole nation. And so without any assistance, cultural evolution at this scale has resulted in the same kind of variation at the national scale as what Eleanor Ostrom found for small groups. And then in each case, you can ask, what is it about the history, the cultural history of the group mm -hmm. that led them to this benign outcome? Right. And here's where cultural evolution reveals a kind of a static side, that if you're starting out, for example, in extractive mode, then it's pretty difficult to change. There's a kind of a stability to these dysfunctional forms of government that makes it not so easy mm. to change. And so, for example, all of the European colonies in Central and South America uh, by the Portuguese and the Spaniards, uh, in part because they were interacting with societies that were already hierarchical and extractive native societies, uh, they remained in extractive mode. Mm. And so if we look at the problems with many, not all Central and South American mm -hmm. countries, we find a legacy of the extractive social organization in North America. And there's fascinating stories to be told about the first British colonies, mm. Jamestown, and these things we mm -hmm. learned about in American mm -hmm. history, actually starting out extractive because, after all, England was a feudal society. Right. It was not egalitarian at that point, mm -hmm. but nevertheless being forced by circumstances to become more inclusive just to survive as colonies. And then, as they grew up in scale, then that inclusive mode forced upon them by just survival at the scale of small group then became a model for the, the 13 colonies. Mm -hmm. And also they borrowed from the Indian federations that they knew about. So there's a different story for, uh, I just told two stories. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at Scandinavia, there's another story. The Netherlands, there's another. Switzerland, there's another. Japan, there's another. So different nations occupy the the good end of the of the variation for different reasons. And do you know also fluctuate during their histories? Mm -hmm. And my colleague Peter Turchin has a wonderful book called Ages of Discord. Mm. And Ages of Discord is a very detailed analysis of American history mm. and how it has actually fluctuated in, in its degree of egalitarianism, inclusiveness, uh, with corresponding differences in, in welfare. So in the 1830s, which is when Tocqueville visited America, it was highly egalitarian. And so, and that was called the era of good feelings by historians. Mm. Well, then that led to the, the Gilded Age and the Civil War and mm. the Great Depression, extreme income inequality, great social unrest. So that was the worst of times. That led to the New Deal, mm -hmm. another era of good feelings for some, not others, mm -hmm. because there's always people that are excluded, women and minorities, so we don't want to be too romantic about this. But nevertheless, it was the case that there was much less income inequality, uh, rich people were taxed, things like that. And then that led to the Reagan era and our current situation, mm -hmm. which is you could call a second gilded age. And so 
Uh, that's how dynamic cultural evolution is. And uh, the optimistic conclusion to draw from that is that we can change. And in a sense, we know how to change. And yes, we do have to take our cultural history into account. So we have to change based upon our past, and that might be different and detailed than what another country like Norway might need to do, or any, any country. So it's not as if history is unimportant. There is such a thing mm -hmm. as path dependence. But nevertheless, we have a functional blueprint to follow in the form of these core design principles. I want to touch back on um, the ideas of religious and spiritual imaginations that have come up a couple of times. I'm curious about your own experience and your own path in this work and in your own life. You mentioned um, in the introduction to the book that you've now learned to become bilingual in terms of speaking the language of secular or scientific approaches, but also these ideas of spiritual or religious views. Can you just say a bit about how this has affected you personally? Uh, happy to, and um, I'll make it as brief as possible <laughs> without leaving out important details. To begin, I had a thoroughly secular upbringing. My dad was a famous novelist, Sloan Wilson, and he scorned religion. He made mm -hmm. fun of it. He thought it was hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And my mom was would call herself an agnostic, but I seldom saw the inside of a church. Mm -hmm. At the same time, both my parents were nurturing and warm and, and certainly had, you might say, Christian values or moral values. And so I was certainly taught to be nice. And, and I think I'm also that kind of person by temperament. I do have a pro-social uh, temperament. And so that led me to study pro-sociality as a biologist. I entered the field at a time when this individualistic swing that we've been talking about was in full force. Mm. And uh, altruism never evolved. Everything that did evolve was a form of selfishness. Mm -hmm. And so uh, pro-social me rebelled against that and then sought out basically ways to explain the evolution of altruism and pro-sociality mm -hmm. at face value. So that fitted my temperament. And I also gravitated in part because my dad was a novelist to this prospect of studying and understanding the human condition. He did it through the lens of his personal experience. I could do it through the lens of a theory. Mm -hmm. But to ponder the big questions, especially about humanity from an evolutionary perspective, was something else that was kind of uh, taboo at the time. Um, my namesake, Edward O. Wilson, when he wrote his book Sociobiology in 1975, got in trouble. We're trying to extend sociobiology mm -hmm. to the study of humanity. But for me, that was alluring. Mm -hmm. So these heretical theories of group selection and human evolution, uh -huh. I saw as an opportunity. But never did I become involved in any kind of religious or spiritual practice myself. Mm -hmm. For me, it was always a intellectual topic. And uh, all the way through just studying religion per se, Darwin's Cathedral, that was in 2000 to always a uh, intellectual project backed up by a kind of a pro-social temperament, but always envisioned in thoroughly secular mm -hmm. terms. And to this day, I would for the first and foremost call myself an atheist, mm -hmm. if by that we mean avoiding any belief in 
supernatural agents or anything else that counts as counterfactual. Everything I do, I want to be firmly within the bounds of what we might call methodological naturalism. Mm -hmm. uh, then I met an interesting fellow named Kurt Johnson, who, like me, got his PhD in evolutionary biology, but unlike me, became an ordained Episcopal monk oh. between his master's and PhD, and then has become a central figure in what has become known as the interspiritual movement, which is like an advanced form of uh, interfaith and uh -huh. ecumenical mm -hmm. thinking. And the way Kurt describes the interspiritual movement is that all spiritual traditions, along with many secular traditions, arrive at a common awareness of rich interconnectedness. Mm. The world is richly interconnected. You can come to appreciate that by any number of roots. Uh, once you do and you thoroughly reflect upon rich interconnectedness, then it leads to an ethical conclusion, namely the futility of one part of the system attacking another part mm. of the system. That seems just plain futile. And so you seek systemic solutions more than you might otherwise. So this awareness and its ethical conclusions create a common meeting ground for all of these spiritual and secular traditions, a common ground, which is called second-tier consciousness. Hmm. First-tier consciousness is any particular tradition, which remains valuable, mm -hmm. not something you necessarily want to lose or even could lose. So you have your first-tier consciousness and you have your second-tier consciousness, that is the interspiritual movement. So I began to actually engage in some of the experiential practices that I had never done before mm. and, and actually don't feel very comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. Could you give an example? Yeah, there's one example. Uh, and one reason I love doing it is back to an intellectual. I can see what's happening intellectually, what it's doing, but that does not detract from its force. Right. And so there's a ritual called the Mesa, which is, I think, based on Native American practices in which you're going to meet and you're going to do something as a group. Uh, but first you create this ritual space. And it includes nice cloths, which have symbolic value. Uh, Kurt brings cloths that represent the colors of the different major religions. Mm -hmm. There's candles, so we have light. And then there's objects, which are important objects. You might call them sacred or not, mm -hmm. but there might be a fossil or it might be a cross or a, a religious symbol. Mm -hmm. It might be a statue of the, of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. um, and then every member of the group is asked to contribute something to this space that is, represents themselves. Um, when I did it, I had a pen. It was just a cheap pen, but mm -hmm. because I value writing, yeah. it was important to me. Uh, someone put their belt buckle um, anything of significance to you, you put in this space. Mm -hmm. And then you stand around and you hold hands. Back to hand-holding. Back to hand-holding. <laughs> Absolutely, back to hand-holding. And then some words are said about the conversation that we're going to have. And then we were instructed to hold our hands cupped in front of ourselves and to say our names and then blow it into the space. I am David. And then we sit down and we had have the conversation. Compare that to a business meeting where right. you file into some room with Dunkin' Donuts and, right. and fluorescent lighting and just commence to talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
this was profound for me, yeah. even though I could understand like what was taking place. Yeah, we're cultivating a sense of weakness. I get that. Still works. <laughs> uh, but it still works. There did not have to be any supernaturalism right. at all. I could understand it in purely secular psychological terms, and yet it worked. And the conversation that took place was so much deeper mm. and deliberate. What would happen would be there would be long pauses during which people were thinking, and then someone would begin to speak and had everyone's full attention. And then another long pause, and then somebody else spoke, and so on and so forth. And then you end the ritual with another hand-holding and a, a clapping of the hands mm -hmm. and, and, and so on. So I think this uh, reveals something which is obvious, really, um, that... Um, the experiential component of this, you can even understand it in a, in a strict learning sense, adds so much to the intellectual intellectualizing. So there's an example of how I began to uh, participate in some of these things and to, and to become quite uh, won over by them. And also I began to think that there are forms of ways to think about uh, such things as, as, uh, as gods and and deities that mm -hmm. did not require me to believe in uh, any supernatural agency. And the idea of Gaia, I find interesting that way. Gaia mm -hmm. is a, uh, a goddess, it's the earth of, as an organism. Uh, so I can sign on to that. Mm -hmm. um, now, I know as a scientist that the earth is not functioning as an organism now, but it can be. And so the idea of earth as a goddess that requires our help to bring into being, okay. If that's the idea of God, then sign me up. I can sign on to that. Uh, but the only reason I can is that it's, it remains fully within the boundaries of methodological uh, naturalism. I do for myself, I insist upon that. Uh, yet I also recognize that uh, uh, lots of ideas that uh, go beyond those boundaries are very motivating mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. That's why we believe in them. So uh, I think I understand them at the same time that I am working towards a meaning system that does not uh, require, right. require them. It's very important for me to function in that scientific mode. Well, this has been wonderful. Do you have um, key takeaways that you hope that uh, listeners might glean from this or from your book about next steps we might take as a species? Well, I think that one reason I'm so honored by the opportunity to uh, speak with the Dalai Lama and to be involved with the Mind and Life Institute is that I do see this great common ground, you might say, in the objectives. And that's amply reflected in our conversation. When you think that there's this whole secular wing and this whole spiritual wing and the need to become a bilingual to combine them, then that is the prospect before it that does require this social development. So really, there's so many individuals and groups, many hundreds of them really, that are oriented mm -hmm. towards this. But unless we actually work on that structure, we have to go beyond being individually motivated or psychologically motivated. We have to build that structure that we talked about. And so that is a little bit like building a cathedral, you might say. Mm. It might take decades and maybe even centuries, but it's what we need to do. So, so for me, the, the most suspenseful thing is, can we proceed to this stage of actually building this multicellular society, getting people into groups and getting those groups communicating with other groups, 
and building this micro, meso, macro structure. That's the building project that's in front of us. That's what I most want to do, where I'm devoting most of my efforts and where I most want to partner with organizations uh, such as Mind and Life, plus many others. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your work and for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There you can also support our work, including this podcast. <laughs>